Matthew 24 is our text for the morning. Matthew 24. For thousands of years, the nation of Israel had been given so much grace from God, so much light. They'd been given the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices. They'd been given the prophets and their sermons and their signs and their warnings, their instruction. And this had happened for the people of Israel generation after generation. And there was a remnant of the people of God that truly were the people of God that received these graces. But by and large, they were rejected by the Jewish establishment. They rejected the instructions, they ignored the warnings, and they killed the prophets from A to Z, Abel to Zechariah. They slaughtered those who came to preach God's word to them. It was like the vineyard owner who sent his servants again and again to his tenants trying to get the fruit that rightly belonged to him and they killed them and they stoned them. And then, rather than bringing his judgment to bear, he sent more messengers and they did the same to them and finally he sent his son. And yet even now, when we get to Matthew chapter 24, they were plotting to take his life. They were hypocrites, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They relied on the presence of the temple rather than on the presence of God. They relied on the rituals of sacrifice rather than to the Savior that those rituals pointed to. They turned the house of God into a den of robbers. And for generations they had added sin upon sin until finally God's cup of wrath, as it were, was full. And Jesus says that God's judgment is about to fall on them. And this will be His ultimate judgment for their rejection of His very Son. So speaking to the people in the temple For the very last time publicly, Jesus says in chapter 23, verse number 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, he says in verse 38, Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And with that, verse chapter 24, verse 1 says, He left the temple and was going away. Matthew uses two verbs there. Left and went away. When it seems like one would do, perhaps in order to highlight the symbolic gesture that Jesus is making in turning his back on that house, in turning his back on that people, in turning his back on that city. In fact, an astute reader might even recall 
the prophecy of Ezekiel, the vision that Ezekiel saw in chapters 10 and 11, when he saw in his dream the the glory of God, because of the sin of the people of Israel, the sin of Judah, he saw the glory of God. Remember that glory cloud, that fiery pillar. He saw the glory of God abandon the temple and depart from the temple and go out and leave it desolate. That same glory cloud that once filled the tabernacle so that the priest couldn't even enter it, and then filled Solomon's temple. We read that passage earlier. Now that cloud was leaving the temple. And it left out the eastern gate and down and up and over the Mount of Olives. And now here in this text is our Lord reenacting that same judgment. And verse 3 finds him on top of the Mount of Olives, having gone in the exact same path out the eastern gate and up the Mount of Olives. And as they climb the hill, the disciples turn around, and as you get high enough up on the hill of, of Olives, you can see over um, and, and see the temple. And, and there they turned around and they began to look. And the verse 1 says, And his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, in Jesus' day, this would have been what, ha- what is known now as the second temple. Remember, of course, that Solomon's temple, the original temple, was destroyed by Babylon. But the temple began to be rebuilt after Israel went back into the land. It was rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And uh, though Ezekiel saw a vision, actually, of the glory of God one day actually returning back to the temple, the same way that it came to reef. To, to fill again that rebuilt temple, this is the prophecy of Ezekiel 43, yet there is no biblical record that that ever took place. Unlike the filling of the temple with the glory of God at the tabernacle and then at Solomon's temple. And of course, that lack of that filling with the presence of God in, in manifest glory, that led the prophet Haggai to address the people of his day. In Haggai chapter 2, he says to the people, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who remembers the splendor of Solomon's temple and the way the glory of God came and filled that place up? You remember that? And, And many of the older people, they remembered that and they grieved that they did not see it now when they came to rebuild the temple. He says, how do you see it now? Is it as as... It is as is it excuse me is it as not as nothing in your eyes He says yet now be strong O Zerubbabel declares the Lord be strong O Joshua son of Josedek Jehozadak the high priest be strong all you people of the land declares the Lord work for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when I came uh, when you came out of Egypt my spirit remains in your midst fear not For thus says the Lord of hosts, and here's the glory promised again. Yet once more, he says, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory again, says the Lord of hosts. 
But of course, when Jesus stood in the temple, rather than being filled with the glory of God, it was filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Hypocritical priests, leaders of God's people who led them astray, and like a grave that's filled inside with uncleanness and darkness and death, yet outside is beautifully whitewashed, so in fact the the so-called king of the Jews actually, Herod, had continued to beautify and expand the, the physical temple of the people of God. In fact, construction had been going on on that second temple, a kind of reconstruction almost, a, a beautifying and an expanding that had been going on for decades by King Herod. And in fact, was still ongoing when the disciples had Jesus turn around and look at it. But it was magnificent. It was outwardly impressive. Um, there were huge, massive stones that formed the walls of the temple. And not only that, it was covered in uh, precious metals all over the place and, and bejeweled with uh, precious stones. It was a magnificent place to see. Josephus calls it, quote, the most amazing structure of all we have seen or heard of, both in its construction and scale and also in the lavishness of every part and the splendor of its holy places. The rabbi said, if you haven't seen the temple in Jerusalem, you have never seen a beautiful building. This was an amazing thing outwardly to look upon. And Jesus has been saying to them that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people are just like that. That on the outside, they appear religious, good, but on the inside, they're far from God. There are people who have a form of religion, but who miss the whole point of it. They they go through the trappings of of some um, ceremonies, religious ceremonies, but they do not have a heart of faith in God's promised deliverer. Now, the disciples, like most of Israel, were too proud of and a little too dependent on that outward structure, like the people in the Old Testament that the prophet chided for their dependence, who who called out, oh, we have the temple, the temple, the temple. Remember that reading from last week? So these people assumed that they had the presence of God with them. And perhaps the disciples are subtly sort of pushing back on Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on the temple back in verse 38. I mean, can he really mean what he seems to be saying? Are we understanding him right? Does he really mean that such a magnificent complex is going to be left desolate? Verse 2 Jesus answers them. He says, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is a prediction by our Lord of the utter destruction and desolation of that place. Not only only that God will abandon the temple, but that he will destroy it. 
And that is exactly what happened. In less than 40 years after our Lord spoke these words, in August of A.D. 70, the decisive event of the first Jewish war, the Jewish-Roman war, took place. And the Roman army led by General Titus, who is later to become a Roman emperor, breached the walls of the city, breached the walls of the temple, set the temple on fire, burned it, and cast every stone to the ground below. A number of years ago, uh, I took a trip to Israel, and one of the places that we went was along the south wall of the Temple Mount, and then turning over and going just along the southwestern corner. And there, as I rounded the southwest corner, this is what I saw, and this is the picture that I took. These huge stones strewn all over the ground, and the little plaque reminding us of the absolute fulfillment of Jesus' words all those years ago. That not one stone of that temple would be left on top of the other. You can see the stones of the, the wall, of the, the, the shoring wall of the Temple Mount, but this, the temple itself is gone, completely destroyed. And, and this is an amazing judgment of God on a people who were, who were once very, very blessed, right? I mean, to have all of the blessings that they had, and yet God would just utterly wipe out the very place where he, would, where he would meet with them all those years. Because they spurned the presence of God, God removed his presence from them. And that, my friends, is a picture of the judgment that will come on those who were once enlightened, those who have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God, but who have turned away and have held in contempt the Son of God by ignoring Him, by being apathetic toward Him, though they perhaps claimed communion with Him, identity with Him, yet God would turn His back on those who were purportedly His people because of their sin and rebellion. Like the ground that gets plenty of rain and yet in spite of it, never brings forth any good crop. The land was only good to be burned over. And I want to plead with you to repent of sin, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. While you're hearing these words, do not harden your heart toward the Lord, but continue to hear to receive, to believe, and to respond. I think the disciples believed Jesus, but they're struggling to understand. They really want to understand, and so they begin to question Jesus about these things. And that then sets the stage for what is the final sort of discourse of our Lord in the Gospel of Matthew. And it it really runs from chapter 4 into really pretty much the end of chapter, I mean chapter 24 into the end of chapter 25. Um, We don't have time. I do want to read a, a good chunk of it here at the beginning. 
so that we can get it in our minds and then just really introduce it this morning. So, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, and the one but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And when you see the abomination of desolation spoken spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, Let the one who is in the housetop not go down and take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. But alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved." But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is, look, he is in the inner rooms, Do not believe it, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power, with, excuse me, with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. 
Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is faithful and why, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, rather go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Well, that is um, Jesus' discourse in answer to their questions. And what I want to do now is to focus the rest of our time really is kind of an introduction to this whole final discourse. And I feel the need to be a little bit more teachy than preachy, if that's a distinction that can be made. Um, and the Lord has that for us today, just like he has all the things that he has for us in his word. Um, so what is the first thing to say about this passage? Well, the first thing I want to say is that... Uh, 
as you, as you read commentators on this passage, you will find a great deal of disagreement. That's probably not a surprise to you. There is a good deal of disagreement as to the exact nature of the interpretation of this prophecy uh, among good, orthodox, Bible-believing people. In fact, even among people who have broader agreement on other issues, like the doctrines of grace, find themselves um, still in disagreement about the, uh, the application or the, the interpretation of this passage. Um, I, and I've read a ton of different perspectives, even this week, reading a bunch of different authors, and ran across one author who identified a couple of other positions that people took on this passage and the interpretation of this prophecy, and he said, we need to get rid of these heresies out of, out of the church. And I cringed as I read it, because, you know, the man makes some good points, but I think it's possible to overstate um, the centrality of this passage to the Christian faith. That is not in any way to diminish the importance of this passage, but to recognize that there are some things that are more fundamental to the nature of Christianity than others. And, and the nature of prophecy is somewhat mysterious. That is, it's always clearer in hindsight than it is on the front end. This is not to excuse anyone from pursuing what God says. If we don't pursue what God reveals, He says, Oh, you foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. And yet, we do recognize that none of us um, has the benefit of seeing all prophecy in the rearview mirror yet. But God did give this, and it is our uh, job to try to understand it, and so to be edified and helped by it. So as we're approaching this text, it's important for us, first of all, to be charitable to good brothers and sisters who see it differently, to be somewhat humble in our own understanding of it, but not to let that diminish our diligence and our earnestness in trying to grapple with what our Lord revealed to His disciples and to us. So, when interpreters come to Bible prophecy, there are four general categories of perspectives that they have. And I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but there are four general perspectives that people tend to have on reading the prophecies of the Scriptures. The first group are called historicists. These are people who believe that biblical prophecies predict a chronological and comprehensive scheme of future events that the Bible prophecies predict a chronological and comprehensive scheme of future events. In other words, they believe that the, the prophecies of the Scripture reveal the full outworking of human history in order as history happens. So, for example, that the Bible predicts 
the events that would happen in the immediate future after Jesus Christ, and then predicts things that would happen, um, say, during the fall of the Roman Empire and up into the Middle Ages. The Bible has prophecies that speak about specific things that would take place throughout the Middle Ages and all the way up until the Reformation, that the Bible predicted the Reformation, that is the Protestantation in the 1500s, 1600s. Um, and because many of these interpreters also tended to be post-millennial, they viewed that millennium as possibly being ushered in by the Reformation. And so this is probably close to um, the end in terms of the biblical prophecy. Um, the Bible does seem to indicate the possibility of a future apostasy, a great apostasy in the very end. And some of these people also believe that the Bible predicted that, and that may be what we're in right now, this great and final apostasy from the Christian faith. Those are the historicists. Then there are those kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum in their interpretational thinking. And these are called idealists, and they believe that most biblical prophecy, including most of Matthew chapter 24, most biblical prophecy predicts general future conditions without much specific chronological. Okay, the 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 uh, historicists believe in a strict, comprehensive chronological revelation that the Word of God makes. These others would say, no, there's no time references. Instead, the predictions of the Scripture tend to characterize the whole period between Christ's first and second comings. This is a more common interpretation, perhaps, in the book of Revelation than it is with Matthew 24. Most interpreters see in Matthew chapter 24 a prediction of specific future events. But where they differ, of course, is what events that they believe Jesus was referring to and, of course, the timing of the way that those events will unfold. On the one hand, there are those who believe that these events that Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 24 were uh, a reference to the events that took place in A.D. 70, what we just referenced a few minutes ago. In fact, they note that that was the whole background that, that leads to this discussion by our Lord. So Jesus is predicting the in near future, the immediate future within a generation or so for his disciples. But of course, for us, those things are in the past, right? And so that's why these people are called presents. Right? Now, I want to stop here and just issue a warning about a heresy, and really I don't think that term is too strong to use, of this particular view. And that is a heresy of, um, uh, some people just call it preterism, but others call it full preterism. I think probably a better term would be hyper-preterism, which teaches that every single 
biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled in terms of where we stand today. All biblical prophecy anywhere in the scripture has already been fulfilled. These are full or hyper preterists. So they believe that the return of Christ has already happened, the resurrection from the dead, the final judgment, all of that is finished. Um, This is contrary to what Christians have universally confessed for 2,000 years. However, many very good orthodox interpreters throughout church history have uh, been partial preterists. That is, they have believed that many of the prophecies in the Scripture were fulfilled in the near future for Jesus, the past for us, that is around A.D. 70. Most, but not all. And the key verse for them in this text is verse 35. Right? Take a look at verse 35 again. Jesus gets through a lot of this discourse, and all of a sudden he says, not all of a sudden, but, but he says this, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And the most natural way to read that is that it's going to happen soon, within your lifetime. So those are the preterists. And then there are the futurists. That is, those who read most of the Bible's prophecies um, as dealing with the far future, that is, events that are even still future for us. They're still going to happen someday. And so would take most, if not all, of the events in Matthew chapter 24 as a reference to Christ's second coming. That is his parousia, his coming in glory, his, the revelation of the Lord in the very last day. All right, so those are the four basic schemes. And I really highlighted those four only to, essentially only to warn you against, um, against hyper-preterism. Now let me come back to Matthew 24, and, and, and it'll play in here, because in Matthew chapter 24, there are some people who see all of Matthew chapter 24 as being in the past. Not all prophecies, not those guys, but just all of the references in Matthew chapter 24 as being fulfilled in 70 A.D., There are other people who see all the events in Matthew chapter 24 or nearly all of the events in Matthew chapter 24 as being in the future, right? So some people think AD 70 was the fulfillment. Some people believe Jesus coming again someday in glory will be the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 24. As I said, some people see it almost all in the past or all in the future. Most interpreters believe that there are elements of both within the text. And I think, humbly think, that's right. I do think there will be some overlap because of the already not yet nature of eschatology. Right? In other words, the the age to come has already dawned in the present with the first coming of Christ. Even while it waits consummation, until Christ's second coming. In other words, it still is the age to come, and yet elements of that are already being manifest in this present age. I want to put up a a slide to help you visualize this. I've used it before. This came 
uh, originally back when we were studying um, Ephesians. And if you, I'm not going to go through all of the support for this. If you want to do that, you can go back to the sermon on Ephesians 1.10 on Sermon Audio. But uh, here is what I think is a general biblical eschatology. Um, the Old Testament prophets predicted a future golden age, an age of glory, an age when God's people would experience unprecedented blessings and glory that had been predicted for all those years. That's that bright yellow line running up there at the top, okay? They predicted that day. They saw that day. When would that day come? When would the age, of, the age to come dawn? Well, when the Messiah came. This was traditional Jewish eschatology. This, um, uh, and, and, and I tell you, when Jesus came, I believe that age to come did dawn. It is already um, inaugurated. And that's why you see at the line at the top, the age to come already. When did it begin? With the coming of Christ, and particularly and we'll get to this, Lord willing, in the next few weeks, with the glorification of Christ. All right, That upper arrow is indicating His ascension to the right hand of God. So this is the dawning of the age to come. Uh, this is what the Bible calls in, in many places... Um, well, uh, let me come back to that. Uh, it's the beginning of the age to come. So what do we have? We have already the blessings of the age to come. We have eternal life. That is literally... The age life, um, we, have, we are already resurrected and with Christ in the heavenly places. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation, the new heavens and earth, it's like it's already dawned. It's already begun in us who belong to the Lord. We're already experiencing and tasting of the age to come. It is here, and yet it is not yet. It will not be in, um, fully realized or consummated until Christ returns. Um, it is, we have the beginning of the age to come. And what we do right now, so we're living in kind of the overlap. You see how these are overlapped? The age to come has begun, but it, the, age, the present age is not yet completely uh, done away. And so we live in this overlap that the Bible calls... Uh, the fullness of time, or the end of the ages, or the last days. These are all biblical terminologies to talk about this period in which we live right now, the period between Christ's first and second comings. To use the language of Revelation chapter 20, if I were to throw that in here as well, um, and I think that's the next slide, guys, um, you could say that this age is characterized by the first resurrection, that is a spiritual resurrection, being born again and brought into the presence of God when we die, and that the strong man, that is Satan, is bound from deceiving all of the nations. So in this period, what happens? The gospel is not, uh, Satan is bound so that all of those nations who sat in darkness for those thousands of of years, and now the gospel begins to go out in a mighty way among the nations. But of course, on a parallel track, we continue to live in this old world, still waiting for the consummation, so it is not yet. When will that consummation take place? Next slide. When the age to come comes down into this present age with the return of Jesus Christ personably, 
personally and visibly. That will bring the consummation of all that God had predicted. When Christ returns, when His presence is made manifest, when all enemies are utterly eliminated and put under His feet, including the very last enemy that is to be destroyed, which is death itself, when death will be no more. This is, then, to use the last slide, the age of the second resurrection, the bodily resurrection, and also the age of the second death, when death and hell are cast into the lake of fire with the devil and all of his demons, as well as those who follow them in rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what I'm getting at, right? There is, there is in this sense of the Bible that the age to come, the kingdom of Christ, has already been inaugurated. The old has passed away, all is becoming all has become new, and yet it's not yet fully here. It's realized, but it's not consummated. We live in this overlap between those two ages. Now, with that in mind, if that is true, okay, if that is a legitimate paradigm that comes from the Scripture in terms of understanding its own eschatology, then take a look at the disciples' question in verse 3. Look at their question. I don't have it on the screen. You have to look at your Bible. Um, he's, their question is that they want, look at the very end of it. They want to know about the end of the age. Now, it, just thinking about what we've just said, what would you say about that? Where's the end of the age? Well, in one sense, the present age was about to end soon. Right? Christ's coming, His glorification especially, would be the dawning of the age to come, the messianic age, the end of the old covenant, the inauguration of the new. But in another sense, the consummation of the age, uh, the public revelation of Christ's glory lay still in the far future, indeed still for the, in the future for us. And so answering the disciples' questions almost seems to demand a layered answer. And so many interpreters hold some mixture of these views that I mentioned earlier. Like there are interpreters who are kind of historicist preterists or ones who are preterist idealists or idealist futurists, or people who just see elements of all three of these things woven into this passage. Or there are people who I would call typologists, who see the references in Matthew 24 as primarily pointing toward 70 AD, but then in turn who would see the events of 70 AD as typological of the final judgment that is to come and the return of Christ. And I would say that that view is somewhat compelling. But more compelling, at least to me, is to see in Matthew 24 not a mixture of these things, but a shift from talking about one to talking about another. A shift within the text itself, as Matthew records it, from Jesus talking about what is the past for us 
to what is still yet future for us. A shift in the text from talking about the events of A.D. 70 to the events of Jesus' parousia, his appearing, his return. And many interpreters posit some sort of transition point in the text itself. For example, um, I'm going to just throw out a couple names that I thought maybe some of you would know. If you don't, not a big deal if you know them or don't know them, but um, D.A. Carson, who is a premillennialist, he sees the shift from Jesus talking about A.D. 70 to talking about his second coming. He sees the shift in ver- at verse 29. That's the transition point. Or John Gill, whose commentary you may have consulted from time to time, he uh, was a preterist postmillennialist. He saw the transition point not until chapter 25, verse 1. So all of chapter 24 is about 70, but when you get to chapter 25, Jesus begins to talk about his second coming. So most of the division people look at in the text seem to me to have less to do with the structure of the text than it does with the interpreter's own theological suppositions about the content of that particular section. So if the, if the section reads like something that seems like it would be about the, coming, the second coming based on what they, how they interpret other passages, then they make that division there, and then maybe they might have two or three divisions, and maybe Jesus is kind of going back and forth, and, and people are a little bit confused. But as I say, most interpreters seem to uh, divide it based on their own theological suppositions about the content of that particular section of Matthew 24. Here's what I believe is most likely, for what it's worth, that there is a shift that our Lord was making at verse 36. At verse 36... And I think that the structure of the text is designed to encourage us to see that. So that verses 4 to 35 refer to Christ's judgment on Jerusalem. And verses 36 and following refer primarily to Christ's second coming. So if, uh, if you want to read a little bit more, and some, some people are like, no, I've, this is all I ever wanted to know and more. That's okay. But if you wanted to read more, I'd say the best commentary in this regard is by R.T. France, just like the country France. Some other names you might know a lot that interpret along this line are Robert Raymond, uh, who you may not know the name, but he is associated with Ligonier Ministries, and a lot of Ligonier kind of leans this way. Um, even seeing that break at verse 36, so Robert Raymond. Um, Jay Adams, some of you have done some of the competent to counsel, the newthetic counseling stuff, also held this view. Kenneth Gentry, uh, Ken Gentry is another name, and uh, some of, most of you know the name Matthew Henry, the old commentator. His view is slightly different, but it essentially sees a break at verse 35 as well. So um, at least you know, hopefully, that I'm not a heretic. Um, now, let me quickly give you seven reasons, and this, is, this will be quick, and we're almost to the end. Seven reasons why I think this, and we won't you know, go back and rehash all this every single time, but I, but I want to start us out this way, and, um, and then hopefully as we go along, you'll, you'll see it in the text. Here's why I believe that Jesus shifts his discussion at verse 36 
from the structure of the text itself. Number one, because of the first two words of verse 36. The first two words of verse 36. But concerning. This is an, what they call an adversative. Some, I've been talking about one thing, but something else. Now, it doesn't always have that strong, sometimes it's just a, almost a simple connective. But in this case, particularly with the other word, so it's peri-day is the Greek construction, but concerning is a typical biblical way of shifting to a new topic of conversation. Paul does this a, a number of times, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter, I mean, in the book of 1 Corinthians. You remember he talks about a particular topic for a while, and then he says, now concerning such and such, and then he begins on another topic, probably referencing back to some questions that the Corinthians had actually asked him, which I think is pretty instructive because Jesus is here responding back to some questions that his disciples have put to him. So it seems to be that those two words indicate a shift. Secondly, not only does verse 36 read like a beginning of something different, but the end of the other section, verse 34 in particular, reads almost like a conclusion. Look again at verse 34. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Right? Seems like, it just sounds like the end. Right? All these things I've been telling you, here's when they're going to happen. Boom. It seems to take in the whole sweep of everything that's gone before, and in fact, I think it does. Thirdly, there is a transition at verse 36 from Jesus talking about those days to talking about that day. So four different times in verses 4 to 35, Jesus says, talks about in those days, those days, those days, those days. When you get to chapter, when you get to verse 36, he starts talking about that day, what day, a day, the day, as if he has something more specific and distinct in mind. The fourth reason I think there is a shift here are the time markers that are found or not found in these two sections. Verses 4 to 35, notice that you have Jesus saying things like this, hey, now, Disciples, you're going to see certain things happening, but the end is not yet, right? I'm going to tell you, that's not the end. I know when the end is, and that's not it. So when you see that, don't think that's the end. Or, he says, of course, this generation will not pass until the end, until this, these things all take place. So, so there's some clear time references there. But when you get to verse 36, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the Son of Man knows in his humanity. So there's a distinct absence of time references in the second half. Number five is the presence or lack of warning indicators. In verses 4 to 35, you see Jesus saying, hey, now when you see this thing called abomination of desolation, which we'll have to try to figure out, when you see that though, Jesus says, then... Be warned, right? Be ready, flee, get out of the city. If you're in Judea, Jerusalem, get out because judgment's about to fall on Jerusalem. When you get to verse 36, he says that the return of Christ is unexpected. He calls, he says, people will be, quote, unaware, right? It'll be like the time of the flood, people just eating and drinking and doing all of their normal things. Right? So there seems to be a lack of 
those warning indicators that there were earlier. Number six is the use of the term parousia. Parousia is one of three main terms in the New Testament to refer to Christ's second coming, specifically to his physical body return. The only use that Christ makes of it in verses 4 to 35 is to contrast his parousia with that period. But when you get to verse 36, he uses it twice with regard to those events that I think refer to the Lord's second coming. And then finally, number six, or what is it, seven? Seven? I think there is a distinction because of the way Matthew structured the disciples' questions. He structured their questions around two interrogatives. When and what? He Notice the question again. This is up at the top, verse 3. When will, be these, when will these things be? That is, I take it to be the destruction of Jerusalem. When will these things be? And, second question, what will be the sign of your coming? And by the way, the term they use there is the parousia. What will be the sign of your parousia and of the end of the age? That in the disciples' minds, this is all just one big question. And they assumed that it would all be together. But I think that Matthew frames them as two distinct questions in order to acknowledge that our Lord gave two parts to his answer. Well, that's it. That's, that's all you're going to get uh, from me. And I think that we will have to see as we go through whether this interpretation is in fact vindicated uh, by the text. I will end this way. If, if this interpretation is correct, then this is really one of the most amazing prophecies of the Bible. The first half of this prediction, Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem within a generation, is vindicated, not vindicated, that's probably not the word, corroborated by explicit extra-biblical records that confirm every detail of Jesus' prophecy. I mean, it's, it's really kind of amazing, actually. Imagine somebody in 1970 in New York City watching the World Trade Center Twin Towers are almost completed. And they're nearing, the, they're the tallest most sophisticated buildings in the world at that time. And someone on the street walks up to him and says, do you see those buildings? Within your lifetime, they'll be destroyed. And you just, you can hardly fathom that. And yet those of us who live now have come to see that is exactly what happened. And no doubt, these prophecies had that kind of solidifying effect of the faith of Christ's disciples and ought to have the same kind of effect for us to see that Christ's predictions are absolute. And we encourage ourselves then by looking at past prophecies fulfilled in order to hold on to what he says about what is still future for us. Because, I mean, frankly, 
It's been 2,000 years, and there's a whole lot of people that have said, it's time to leave Christianity behind. We gave, you know, humanity gave Jesus 2,000 years to complete his prophecies, and we're still waiting. So, the, where is his coming? All things continue as they were since the beginning of the world, right? And maybe in your heart of hearts, you've felt a little burdened about that at times, a little a little wave of, of, of fear or doubt has crept in. And I hope that seeing the way that Jesus um, predicted something that would happen within, his lifetime, within the lifetime of his followers and then looking forward to what he has predicted for our future will yet and confirm and encourage your faith. In fact... Our Lord will do more than that. He will go in chapter 25 and particularly talk about and, and, and try to alert us and his followers to the fact that there will be a delay before all of these things are brought to their ultimate consummation. And so he warned us ahead of time to be ready for this, to know that this is exactly where we would be right now as we sit here today. There are skeptics who doubt that any of these prophecies of, for our future are certain. But I trust that the Lord will use this in our hearts. If the prophecies of the events of A.D. 70 came true in every detail, then how can we doubt the prophecies of His return in glory will come to pass? This should give men both hope in Christ's truthfulness and His faithfulness and fear and awe in the absolute certainty of his future return to judge all of the earth. I'll close with this word from Hebrews 12. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting the new age with the old. Mount Sinai with heavenly Mount Zion, the tabernacle of the past with the spiritual temple that is Christ. As in chapter 12, verse 18, for you, that is you Christians, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, Mount Sinai, it will be stoned. Of course, this is when God is giving the law to Moses, right, in the, the tabernacle. Verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But he says, but you, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So here's the application, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Now at the same time, verse, verse 26 says, At that time, at, at, at Mount Sinai, with the giving of the tabernacle, God's voice shook the earth. Right? We read about that uh, in, in Exodus. 
But now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. You remember that phrase? That came from Haggai that we read earlier. When uh, they had rebuilt the temple after coming back from exile, and they were waiting in vain for God's glory to come and fill Zerubbabel's temple. God said, yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth like at Sinai, but I will shake the heavens also. Now, the writer says this phrase, verse 27, follow it now, we're almost done. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. The earthly tabernacle, the temple, and all of its instruments in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, now here's the application again, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May we be both warned and encouraged by these prophecies of our Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. And Lord, we confess our struggle to understand it, but we rejoice at what we can see here. What we can see clearly is so encouraging to us. And we pray that it would encourage those who belong to you to wait patiently for that day to come, for the consummation of the age. And, Lord, also, that it would be a warning of the certainty of your judgment for all who continue to walk in their own way. Lord, please grant repentance and a return to you for those who are here today. In Jesus' name, amen.